before Dan comes up and gives us our sermon for today, open your Bibles to 1 Kings 18. And I'll read for us from chapter 18, verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have, made trouble for, uh, I have made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. But you and your father, father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's, you have abandoned the Lord's command and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent words throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between the two options? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the Lord's people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and I'll put it on the wood, but uh, not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Thanks, Dan. It's good to be with you again, brothers. Let's uh, pray as we begin. <clears throat> uh, dear Father, as we turn to your word once again, we pray that you would be with us, that you would help us to understand uh, your word and uh, more than understand it, to uh, take it into our very hearts and souls and live it out in our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes you just need to flex. Uh, I remember one year being on mission as a student and we had a team meeting in the backyard of the senior minister. <clears throat> and uh, as we were all sharing about, about our day, around the circle, his really large Alsatian uh, started to get a little bit agitated and started growling and nipping at some of the team. And the situation just escalated a little bit more until the Alsatian was poised to leap at one of our team members. And just as it did so, the senior minister just calmly rose out of his chair, caught the dog midair, flipped it on its back onto the ground, boof! put his foot on its chest, sat down calmly and said to the next person, and how did your dog knocking go? Any good conversations? And the Alsatian was just sitting there going <laughs> for about the next few minutes until he let it up and it wandered off sheepishly and didn't bother any of us again. <clears throat> now, most often flexing is self-indulgent and necessary, like when people try and quote Hebrew in sermons except for the Old Testament department, of course. 
But sometimes, for the good of all involved, you just need to show beyond the shadow of a doubt who really is in charge. In this famous passage on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings chapter 18, we see God flex. But again, far from being self-indulgent and unnecessary, God does this for our good so that we can see beyond the shadow of a doubt that in him alone, the one we are preparing to proclaim here at college in a hostile world, is truth and life. So let's turn there. We're going to try and cover the whole chapter and we're going to do it under three headings. Uh, God's hidden flex in verses 1 to 15, God's public flex in verses 16 to 38, or 16 to 45, and then God's greatest flex, or ultimate flex. <clears throat> so God's hidden flex, verses 1 to 15. So the situation here is about three years on, if you remember from last week, from 1 Kings 17. And uh, things are looking very grim in Israel. No dew, not a drop of rain for three years. It is a pretty poor showing for the supposed storm god, Baal. But now Yahweh, the true God, acts. Verse 1. After a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab. I will send rain on the surface of the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, and the famine was severe in Samaria. So God now is graciously determined to send rain on the land, but he wants it done publicly so that there can be no mistaking who truly gives rain and life. And so we're going to have a God contest in Israel. It's a walk-off. It's a walk-off. <clears throat> but before we get to the big showdown on Mount Carmel, which uh, we, we read the beginning of in verse 16, we see God flex, actually, in a different, more hidden way through this man, Obadiah, in verses 3 to 16. Uh, second years, you doing your narrative analysis. Uh, I was having a chat with George Assis about this last night. We think this is an embedded narrative that bears a tangential relationship to the main narrative, or, in gamer language, this is the Obadiah side quest. But we're told two key things about Obadiah. First of all, he is in a very powerful public position. In fact, he is Ahab's second in command. He is the palace administrator in charge of all the resources and the distribution of them. And second, most important, he fears the Lord. Verse 3. Obadiah was a man who greatly feared the Lord and took a hundred prophets and hid them, fifty men, to a cave and provided them with food and water when Jezebel slaughtered the Lord's prophets. So Jezebel's thrown herself into a brutal, systematic extermination of Yahweh's prophets in an attempt to erase him and his word from Israel. But in Obadiah's quiet, courageous, underground ministry that we have in verses 3 to 15, what we see is Yahweh's quiet but massive statement Jezebel, you have completely failed. And the irony is so sweet. <clears throat> While Ahab and Jezebel are gloating in their seeming triumph over Yahweh, he's working right under their noses, using their own resources to preserve his prophets and completely undermine their whole attempt. 
And so this section about Obadiah shows us that God works both head-on and behind the scenes. And you just can't stop him no matter what you try. You try nailing the front door shut, he's already come through the back and he's holding the next plank for you to nail in. Uh, In his commentary, uh, Dale Ralph Davis puts it this way, Sometimes Yahweh attacks evil with the in-your-face style of an Elijah, and sometimes he frustrates it by the simple subversion of an unobtrusive agent like Obadiah. And so thinking about where this narrative kind of applies in our lives, I think it obviously applies to context of persecution. So I have a friend who runs a mobile theological college in a closed country. Uh, He uses a false name, and he has to keep moving around. He can't set up a permanent campus because he has to avoid detection by the authorities. And I'm sure you will know uh, friends and family, some of whom may have sat in this very room, who you can't share names or locations because of the danger it had put them in. And Obadiah reminds us how powerful and how vital those ministries are and how important it is that we support and encourage and be part of those engaged in such ministries. But I think we can also make a more general application from Obadiah, and that is that Obadiah is very, very different to Elijah, right? He's clearly very brave and faithful. He risks his own neck to save the prophets, but he's not Elijah Mark II, Mr. All Guns Blazing Confrontation. He works quietly, steadily, under the radar. In fact, you see in verses 7 to 15, he is very keen to avoid confrontation, uh, unlike Elijah, who just seems to thrive on it. And so I think for us that means we need our Elijahs, those who can go toe-to-toe with the world for the gospel and blow the consequences. But we shouldn't miss how precious to God the -the behind-the-scenes ministry is. Um, And as I reflect on my own Christian growth, uh, God has used many people to grow me in Christ, some of them very powerful upfront personalities, and I thank God greatly for them. But I think actually the people who have been most influential in my Christian growth have actually been the Obadiahs. In fact, I think the, the person who is most directly responsible for me becoming and staying a Christian, humanly speaking, is my mum, who is a reserved, introverted, Chinese piano teacher. About as far from the limelight of Christianity as you can get. But it was her teaching uh, the gospel night by night and, her, uh, and me just seeing my mum live it out consistently day by day, unheralded, unnoticed, that I reckon has planted the deepest and strongest roots of the gospel in my heart. So can I encourage you that Obadiah-type ministry is so vital and so valuable in that work of saving people and building up God's kingdom. So don't neglect it and don't forget it. You know, you think about the often thankless task of the Sunday school or scripture teacher. Those whose ministry is mainly to pray steadily and faithfully for those around them, for those around the world and for people like us. Those who just have a knack of seeing what service people need and then getting on and doing it without having to be asked or thanked. Those are precious, powerful, life-saving activities because the true God saves both up front and behind the scenes. 
And so for us, preparing for public upfront ministry, I think it's a really important call for us to appreciate those who support us behind the scenes and also for us never to think that as the upfront leader, we are above ourselves doing that unseen, humble, but powerful work of God. <clears throat> All right, Obadiah side quest complete. So in verse 16, we now return to the main confrontation, God's public flex. Uh, despite his fear, Obadiah goes to Ahab and the contest is arranged. Pick it up in verse 19. Elijah says to Ahab, Now summon all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab summoned all the Israelites and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. Then Elijah approached him and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal follow him. But the people didn't answer him a word. So Elijah presents Israel with a simple but stark choice. Are you going to follow Yahweh or Baal because you cannot have both? Right? Their respective characters and the path they take your life down are so different you just can't have it both ways. Uh, there is an African proverb a man who tries to walk two paths will split his pants. <laughs> and so Elijah says, Israel, Yahweh, Baal, who is the real deal? Which God's character is really worth following? But while that's true, actually, in the narrative, it goes even further. It's not just a neutral choice between two options because verse 21 literally reads, how long will you go on hobbling on two crutches. Um, I remember uh, as a kid, you know, spraining my ankle and being on crutches for a few weeks, and you did this, didn't you? You know, when your ankle was strong enough, you did that little exercise of lifting both feet off and trying to make it on just the two crutches, and it works for about two seconds. And then you just go all over the shop, crash, re-sprain your ankle, and you're on the crutches longer. But that's what Elijah says to them. How long will you go on hobbling on two crutches? And the reason why that word is so important is because it's used again in verse 26 about the prophets of Baal dancing or hobbling around their altar. And so this is not just a neutral decision. Do you want this one or that one? This is a desperate appeal by Elijah to people already under Baal's sway, staggering away from true life in Yahweh to get rid of the crutches and come back to Yahweh before it's too late. Now, the contest is set up in verses 22 to 24. And the way Elijah does it, he actually deliberately stacks the odds in Baal's favour so that Yahweh, the true God, can stand out in even starker relief. Then Elijah said to the people, I am the only remaining prophet of Yahweh, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. They are to choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. I will prepare the other bull and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of Yahweh, the God who answers with fire. He is God. All the people answered, Oh, yeah? 
So let's see, how does Elijah stack the odds towards Baal? First of all, the contest is set on Mount Carmel. Now, Mount Carmel was a prominent range of coastal hills in northern Israel, which was famous for its beauty and fertility, up towards Sidon. But it was also known up towards Sidon as the Mountain of Baal. So it's almost like he's giving Baal home court advantage. Then there's the numbers game. Baal gets 450 prophets as his cheer squad, compared to one for Yahweh in Elijah. He also allows them their choice of bull and the advantage of going first. That is, if they can get Baal to respond, then they win by default. Elijah doesn't even get a go. And finally, calling for a response of fire or lightning to come down and strike the sacrifice, well, that's Baal's signature dish. He is the god of storms. And in fact, Elijah's going to go even so far later in the chapter to drench the offering with water making it seem well-nigh impossible for Yahweh to win. Now, in verse 26, the prophets of Baal get started. They choose their bull, and then they spend all morning carrying on and crying out for Baal to answer. Now, a few hours later, nothing's happened. So Elijah, very helpfully, decides to wind them up. Verse 27. At noon, Elijah mocked them. He said, shout loudly, for he's a god. Maybe he's thinking it over. Maybe he's wandered away, maybe he's on the road. Perhaps he's sleeping and he'll wake up. Now, he's clearly taking the mickey out of them, but it's actually more than that. He's not just picking random things to goad them. He's actually just applying Baal's own theology to their worship. See, verse 27 is almost a point-for-point -point match with what happens in the ancient Near Eastern Baal cycle. Maybe he's thinking it over, maybe he's wandered away. So in, in ancient religions, the gods were quite human in character and in their flaws. They got distracted, confused, and preoccupied. And so, you know, um, those people who, when they're reading a book, no matter if you're sitting right next to them, they just don't hear what you're saying. Right? Maybe, maybe that's what's wrong with Baal. He's, he's reading something interesting. Shout louder, get his attention. Um, and some scholars even think that he's wandered away. He might refer to Baal ducking to the outhouse or something like that. Maybe he's travelling. Uh, in the Baal cycle, his sister Anat comes to his house looking for him, only to be told, oh, he's gone hunting, he's not here. Maybe he's asleep and needs to be woken up. And here Elijah may not simply have in mind natural sleep, because in the Baal cycle, when Baal's father El and sister Anat find out he's been overcome by death, Mot, their reaction is to rake their chests and with blades in rage and mourning, before Anat sets out on her rescue mission. And that seems to be what the prophets of Baal understand from Elijah's words. Maybe he's fallen asleep. Have a look at verse 28. They shouted loudly and cut themselves with knives and spears according to their custom until blood gushed over them. In other words, Elijah isn't just winding them up to ridicule them, although he is doing that and he seems to be enjoying himself. He's also making the point that every god has a character and a story which deeply impact the worship of that god, what it looks like, and, what it, and the path it puts your life on. As Greg Beale has put it in his book, we become like what we worship. 
And in this pitiful, tragic picture of the prophets of Baal, you get this clear demonstration of where following Baal, following any god but Yahweh, will truly lead you. He promises health, prosperity and joy, but he only delivers disappointment, desperation and the taste of death. And brothers, is that not still completely true of the gods that surround us today? Whether they be specific deities like Baal or other idols like the materialism that we swim in here in Sydney. We've got to keep making sure that we are worshipping Yahweh alone in our lives and are being crystal clear in our call to those we minister to to worship him alone in their lives. But I think there's an even sadder tragedy that's expressed in these verses with, this, uh, with the prophets of Baal. And that is the end point of all this carrying on and frantic activity. Twice we're told what the end result is. First time in verse 26. But there was no sound. No one answered. And then again in verse 29 in more poignant detail. But there was no sound. No one answered. No one paid attention. For here is the tragic end of calling on a false god and looking to him for life. Silence. Uh, I was listening to a sermon from which I've drawn some of the material from today by Sinclair Ferguson, and he gives an account of the liberal former Archbishop of Canterbury, Robert Runcie, visiting a missionary in India. And he was... Um, being taken around by the missionary, walking past all the shrines and temples. And as they did so, the missionary said, as I look at these people going to their temples, my heart weeps and bleeds for them. And Robert Runcie was astonished. And he said, why do you feel that? The missionary said, I weep for them because when they go to pray, there's no one listening to them. Brothers, that is the end of idolatry. You pray, you hope, you pin all you have on these deities, and there is no one listening. And ought not our hearts to weep for people like that? I hope yours does. But thankfully there is another happier side to this passage because this passage is not just here to expose the emptiness of idolatry and false religion it also illustrates the glory of true faith in Yahweh of, of trust in the God who is true and just as the futile worship of the prophets of Baal matched the character and theology of their God so it is with the true God and his prophets and so contrast that frenzied spectacle of Baal's prophets with the simple dignity of Elijah's approach that we see now. Because remember, the character of Yahweh is that he is the God of faithfulness to his promise and love towards his people. And so his story is about how he graciously binds himself to his wayward people and then keeps all his promises to them so that they may know he is utterly trustworthy and good and have a firm foundation 
from which to respond to him. And so as you read, notice how the character of Yahweh deeply impacts and shapes Elijah's worship. See, what Elijah does shows us at a profound level that what God wants is not religious ritual, but restored relationship. He doesn't do ceremonies to manipulate God into activity, but to actually re-establish Israel into the terms God himself set to relate to them long ago so that he demonstrates God has remained faithful to his promise. What does he do? Three things. First of all, he repairs the altar of God. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near me. So all the people approached him. Then he repaired the Lord's altar that had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, Israel will be your name. And he built an altar with the stones in the name of the Lord. You got this broken altar, which I take it also represents where the people are before God, broken faith, broken covenant, broken promises, broken people. And he remakes it with 12 stones like the 12 tribes of Israel, as if saying to them, while you have been faithless in breaking down Yahweh's altar, he has remained unswervingly faithful to you. Second, notice that Elijah's approach in contrast to the hysterics of of Baal's prophets is simply to pray. Verse 36. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. He knew that God had promised and would keep his word and so there's no attempt to coerce or manipulate or force force God's hand but simply a declaration of trust in God's promises and a statement of his desire for God's glory to be manifested. And third, notice the time that this all happens. Verse 36. It is at the time of the evening sacrifice, presumably in Jerusalem. And so putting it all together, do you see what's happening here? What began as a contest with the powers of darkness now becomes a gracious sacrifice for the forgiveness of sinful people. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So just in application again, what we see in this chapter is that the character of God shapes your theology, which shapes your worship, which determines your life. And so, brothers, we are more theological college. Based on the Bible, yes, but we must be theological. Right? Not just heady, not just intellectual, but the key to it all is knowing God and knowing his character experientially and relationally. Why? Because it is the character of the God you worship that shapes how you worship him and how you live for him. 
And so knowing him, his ways, his words, his plans, is key to everything that you do in ministry. All right, let me wrap up with God's ultimate flex or God's greatest flex. And what I want to show you here is that what happens at Carmel is much, much more than just a single spectacular sign of God's power and supremacy. I hope you can see it already, but it's actually part of establishing a deep pattern that runs through the Bible and through the history of the world of how God works to save. And so 1 Kings 18 prepares us for something even greater several hundred years later that happens on another hill, another greater contest where through a man's prayer being heard and a miraculous sacrifice being consumed by the fire of God's wrath, forgiveness is brought to an undeserving people and the powers of darkness are fully overcome. I come back with me to our New Testament reading in John 17 and just hear the echoes of Mount Carmel and Elijah's prayer in the words of Jesus. After Jesus had said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. See, in the end, Elijah on Carmel is such a powerful testimony to the Lord Jesus on Calvary. So, brothers, what does uh, 1 Kings 18 teach us? Well, it teaches us that we have a God who, unlike every other God in this world, hears the prayers of his people and delights to answer them. We have a God whose joy it is to open his gracious arms to undeserving sinners and fill our emptiness and futility with assurance, purpose, and love. We have the one true God worth giving your life in worship to. So will you do whatever it takes to shape and mould every aspect of your life into a joyful act of worship to God through the Lord Jesus? And will you shape and mould every aspect of your ministry into calling others to do the same? Or will you go on hobbling on two crutches? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful sign of your power in Elijah's sacrifice on Mount Carmel. We thank you even more for the greater sacrifice of the Lord Jesus as he went to the cross for us, as he was consumed by the fire of your wrath so that we might have forgiveness and life. And so, Father, as we stand in the shoes of the people of Israel, help us to hear that challenge. 
not to try and hobble along on two crutches searching after other gods in this world, but rather to follow you all the days of our life. We know we need the strength of your spirit for this, so please supply it in abundance to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.